Hello and welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today. We look at modern Chinese history through the lens of Chinese revolutionary movements, starting from 1839 and the Opium Wars. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is kind of a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. The usual announcements, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast, or you can join the substack at chineserevolutions.substack.com. Please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com as we get the community started. I'd like to see what kinds of things you'd like to see. And also, please rate, uh, leave a review uh, on every platform you can find. This lets other people know that you like this program. Well, here we go. Today, we are looking more at... uh, Hong Xiuquan as he's going toward Thistle Mountain, the Thistle Mountain area in very rugged rural Guangxi in South China. So this, let's review from last time the revolutionary qualities of the Taiping movement. So Hong Xiuquan is forming the ideology and the core leadership to direct the movement. And he's building rules for a new idea for society to form around. That's one of the core parts of our definition of what a revolution is. The rules are changing. And in his move to cleanse the world of evil, uh, rich and poor, Chinese and not Chinese... Uh, These divisions don't matter as much as loyalty to the movement. Now, the the Taiping movement is going to be very, very Chinese, but we'll get into that as we get on. Foreigners represent the possibility for ideological alignment, but in this case, elements of religion come in from outside, but the Chinese identity is going to take over as does anything that takes root in China. Being Chinese is what ultimately takes over. Like, if you look at the Communist Party of China, yeah, they they are communists. There's no, oh yeah, they're secretly capitalists. No, they're using market economics to bolster their system because market economics actually is what improves the lives of the people. The Communist Party has so very, very, very much won the struggle in their country. They're able to actually spend on development now. So we're going to look at the progress toward Thistle Mountain. We're drawing again heavily upon the book God's Chinese Son by Jonathan Spence. The method so far seems to be that we draw on a book at a time. Sometimes we switch between two or three books, depending on what the uh, topic is that we're covering in the this stretch of the podcast. Uh, we're working toward very big picture overarching themes. Uh, 
so let's look at some of the universal elements in a revolution. So like things that don't have to be ideological, things that just are things that go into a revolution. You know, we want our people in charge of our nation again. We want to get rid of foreign rule. Or we want our religion to be on top again. We want we want to be strong and we're in control again. We want to increase our own prosperity and not send it to some other place far away. We want to end injustices against us. So you're going to see a lot of this in the Taiping movement. And uh, something I'd like to draw in from an anthropology of religion class I took back in college, like, tribes in the jungle usually have the local, you know, closer to them in their lives, those gods. But they also have some idea of a faraway universal creator god. They don't know him, they lost contact, lost his phone number, whatever, a long, long time ago. But then when the outside world comes in, the local, more familiar gods are displaced. So something like Islam or Christianity easily replaces those local gods. You can kind of see this in Africa, even where they still have local witchcraft, sorcery, etc. There will be at least a veneer of Christianity or Islam. It's kind of a way that they make peace, in a sense, with the outside world, but they've still got a lot of the magic and things that they've always had. So there's there's some way that they hook into something bigger than just their local thing, but they still have their local identity. They figure it out. I've heard stories about Rosicrucians from Africa thinking that the Rosicrucians in Europe have the much much stronger magic. I don't have an explanation for that. That is not something I'd like to look into, but it's they they get the the magic, the occult thing. You know, and the occult is not uncommon in the world. It's it's weird, but it's not uncommon. Occult only means hidden. It doesn't mean uncommon. So the you know, so then when you see this with the Taiping Rebellion, the Qing Dynasty was man, they they got hammered. And I don't mean drunk. They got they got hit really, really bad by the foreign powers, and then they were forced to make these agreements with foreign powers that they'd open up for trade and concede you know, cities on the coast for you know, trading zones. Well, this this was a huge shock to the Chinese self-understanding. Well, I mean, they had been overtaken by barbarians before, but this was the latest version. This was new, and so this is a time of turmoil, and into that turmoil... Uh, Christian messaging comes. So there, the intellectual space opens up to accept a universal faith that explains everything because the previous scope for what is everything 
got busted wide open. Like one of the things that the Chinese government has today is a much better merging with the international system. They know what borders are. They know what visas and passports and all these things are. It, it took decades of getting thumped by the outside world to figure it all out. So you know, China is now properly sovereign and in control of its own territory. But it wasn't until they figured out how to merge with the evolving international system that all that got worked out. So the, the idea at the moment that I'm discovering as I look more into the Taiping Rebellion, I think part of why it didn't ultimately work out was that it may have been, in a sense, too Chinese to make common cause with outsiders and it was going to fail because it didn't hook into the universal things, as it were. Like when you look at the history of communist Vietnam or other communist countries, yeah, they, they do have local leadership that is running their own agenda for their own purposes, but they are also really communists. Like So in the Vietnam War, they were receiving weapons from China, from the Soviet Union, and they needed all of it. But it's not like Moscow or Beijing was controlling North Vietnam. They, 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 they had a universal faith, as it were, that they were sharing, but the national implementation of the ideology was going to be different. But they, they had a framework through which to interpret the struggle against imperialism, the struggle against America as it was stepping into the gap when the French were thrown out. So the, the most successful revolution that we'll get to in a long time from now, it's going to have to explain what happened to China, how China you know, can reform itself to be strong again, how China can have victory over the things that that ruined its homeostasis, its ability to self-regulate, its ability to put itself in order the way it wants to be. Uh, we will see the communist revolution at least fulfill this function. So getting into now the Taiping Rebellion. From 1845 to 1846, uh, companion, he moves into the Thistle Mountain area in South China. It's among the dispossessed Hakka. Drought and famine were putting pressure on already not-so-well-off people. Banditry is a problem. And he had gone off and not exactly left a not exactly left the number of where he's going off to, and so Hong Xiuquan just kind of left him. Uh, he comes out with the name the God-Worshipping Society, and so that's kind of the name that sticks. And this area, Thistle Mountain, it's away from the city centers of prestige and authority. Some of the converts are miners from the Thistle Mountain area, and just all these different professions, carpenters, blacksmiths, rice flour grinders, boatmen, fish gatherers, fish gatherers? No, fuel, sorry, that's fuel. Charcoal, herd, charcoal makers, herdsmen, peddlers, day laborers, sellers of different things, fortune tellers, traveling people, like a very blue collar 
just ordinary working type people are out there. And so he's out there. So he's who Hong Xuquan is working toward linking back up with. So Hong Xuquan was in Guangxi for a total of five months. And he realizes he needs to go back to his home village to carry on his family line. I'm not sure what... So he's telling everybody about how it's important to you know, fulfill your family duties, you know, obey your parents, all that kind of thing. Well, then you know, maybe he should go back and make sure that he gets the sun. Well, he goes back to his home village some distance from Canton, and he goes back to teaching because maybe he's run out of money, but anyway, he's not on the road right now. And so while he's teaching, he goes back to developing his line of religious tracts, and he calls upon Chinese classics. He draws readers back to a sort of paradisical age before history when there were fewer conflicts between people, when people weren't so selfish. As he's doing this work, you know, news around him is news about him is starting to spread around, and news circulates back to the Protestant missionary Issachar Roberts. So uh, this week, we're focusing on Hong Xuquan and his move toward Thistle Mountain. Next week, we'll dig into the deeper secret society and banditry context in which a lot of this is happening. So we're going to leave some of those details out right now. We'll come back to that next week. Uh, let's look at the missionary work of Karl Gutzloff from Germany, Central Europe. Remember the Radical Reformation. You can go back to the episodes on Protestant missionary work that I did. His, he's from the Moravian Brethren. He didn't have so much of an insistence on formal church structure. For that, for In the Radical Reformation, like anyone who had adequate competence, could kind of jump in and start things up. So the, the Moravian Brethren were a radical Reformation denomination out of Central Europe, and they kind of had an open view of what made for good missionary work, for establishing churches, and what makes for conventional Orthodox Christianity. So one of the weaknesses of this approach is, you know, this work kind of works okay if you're in a broadly Christian society. So then like somebody moving toward your thing from being Catholic, from being Baptist, from being Greek Orthodox, it's, they're not moving very far. You're sharing a lot of the presuppositions but if you're starting them from very far away and bringing them close to you, maybe you're going to get sort of a slingshot effect when their original center of gravity pulls them back. So if you don't keep catechizing your converts in the universal doctrines and things of your religion, their local stuff might take over and make a really weird syncretized thing, which is, in fact, what ha proceeds to occur with the Taiping movement. And 
1845, Carl Gutzloff starts this thing called the Christian Union, and so there's untrained Chinese converts being sent out as evangelists, and his emphasis is on conversion, communal life, spiritual brotherhood. His doctrinal adherence is not very tightly regulated. Uh, so something like ancestor worship or Chinese forms of making offerings to God or the gods are not very clearly evaluated for compatibility with Christianity. Like That's one of the things, if you want to be a missionary, you have to make sure that whatever cultural things survive are compatible with the faith that you're trying to pass on. Sometimes a whole generation might go by, like, leaving aside certain customs, and then another generation will pick them back up again because they know how to be whatever the faith is that you're introducing. But then they they can reassess some of the things from before and bring them back. It's like a lot of that is just, they just do it. They, they just figure it out on their own. Carl uh, Gutzloff was making his own tracts on religion, uh, educational topics, scientific topics, and I'd like to recall your attention to the centrality of the circulation of written material to the Reformation. And so this is going to be something that's going to rub off on the Taiping. The They are going to circulate their own tracts and publications. Uh, Issachar Roberts. He was kind of a lone wolf preacher from Tennessee, did his own thing, had tense relationships with missionary sending agencies in America, so his central thing was conversion and baptism. So I don't know how much he would actually do for preparing someone for baptism. I remember reading about Hong Xiuquan producing a written declaration of faith, so that's that's one thing you want to make sure that they... If you're you know, inducting them into your religion, you want to make sure that they believe what you're trying to teach and not some weird mix. Uh, his So he kind of did his own thing, and he could work with Karl Gutzloff's way of organizing things. He worked in Canton. He was one of the first to return to Canton from Hong Kong. And... In 1846, a convert from Canton goes to Hong Xuquan and suggests that he visit Issachar Roberts. But in 1847, like an actual formal written invitation goes to Hong Xuquan, Hong Rengan comes along as well, and they go down and visit Issachar Roberts. They both go to Canton and read the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, in Karl Gutzloff's translation, and somewhere along the line Hong Rengan leaves. Hong Xuquan asks Roberts to prepare him for baptism. Roberts agrees to take him on, and he sends two Chinese converts to uh, to Hong Xuquan's home area to find out more about who Hong Xuquan is, what he's been up to. Then maybe somebody afraid of losing his job or you know somehow or other wanting to sabotage Hong Xuquan, they encourage Hong to ask Roberts about getting a job with the mission, and this torpedoes the relationship. You know, whatever exactly happened, 
In July 1847, Hong Xiuquan was back out on the road again without getting the Protestant baptism he had been working toward. He goes west toward Guangxi again. He's robbed on the way. There's a huge bandit problem, which we'll get into next week. And though he's robbed, an official helps him with money, which he didn't have a lot of when he was setting out. So, you know, kind of it actually worked. Like, some useless stuff was taken off him. His his sword was taken from him, the one that he had made special. Um, he, But kind of being robbed meant that people gave him money, then he could spend that on, on boat trips rather than having to walk. So while he's on the boat, he meets scholars who feed him, give him tea. They also sometimes persuade boat captains to let him ride for free. He gets a lot of help from people along the way. And so finally he reaches the last village in Guangxi where he knew Feng Yunshan to be. And so when he finds out there where Feng has gone on toward, uh, he goes north into the mountains where he understands Feng to be and toward uh, the Thistle Mountain region. Difficulties on his journey drive his convictions even deeper. He writes a poem about his journey using the word I that only the emperor is allowed to use. So, you know, all the all the difficulties, it's just he just kind of rolls with it and accepts that as part of his divinely given mission. At the end of 18, August 1847, he reaches Thistle Mountain and Feng Yunshan and the converts that Feng has made. Uh, the first month they're together, they're focused on writing and correcting previously written tracts. Now that they have access to, or at any rate, knowledge of the Bible, they can bring their writings in line with the text of the Bible. Hong Xiuquan's Explanations of his initial dream evolves. One of the critical elements in his program is the destruction of idols and false beliefs. So in the beginning, he might have some approval for Confucian thinkers because they worked against popular superstitions. But then he now he's bringing around an increasing criticism of Confucius and Confucianism. I think one of the things I read was that he, he makes up a vision about how Confucius is allowed to be in heaven because he wasn't that bad, but he wasn't allowed to go back to earth again because he screwed things up pretty badly, though you know, though a lot of his stuff was okay. Uh, if you want, if for now, one of the things that Jonathan Spence in God's Chinese Son, that book, really gets into is a lot of the literary qualities of Hong Xiuquan, how he thought, how he would write his name and how he worked double meanings into a lot of what he was doing. You can go into that in that book. It's some really interesting stuff. So as we draw to a close for this episode, so they're living with the Zheng family. They're increasing activity in defacing and destroying idols, circulating tracts, and they're searching for a base area from which to operate more consistently. So what we have to work with is the establishment of a base area from which they're going to launch the movement more formally, 
and they have a broad regional network of converts, people traveling around, making other converts, passing on the good news as they understood it. They have some acquaintance with foreign Protestant missionaries, and especially when Hong Run Gan turns up in Hong Kong, and uh, is ac I think is actually ordained a Protestant minister, and he does mission work in Hong Kong. They have, they have a growing core ideology, and they're gathering material from outside sources rather than looking to missionaries for the message. So they're, they're borrowing from outside sources, but it's not like they're converts to Protestant Christianity asking for foreigners to teach them in the ways of this faith. And they have a growing sense of mission for what they're supposed to do in China. Some things we've passed over, like bandits and criminal activity, Chinese secret societies, mafia-type activity piracy. We're going to come back to that next week. It's a fascinating you know, hidden world. Uh, again, if you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. If you'd like to join the Substack, you can go to chineserevolutions.substack.com. Please send me an email to let me know what you think. chineserevolutions at gmail.com. This again has been Nathan Bennett, and I'll see you in the next one. Thanks for listening.